Turn in your uh, Bibles to Acts chapter 4. This morning we're going to pick up our study in verse 32. Uh, we'll pray, then we'll read the passage to be examined, and then we'll make observations and applications as we go. So uh, would you pray with me? Uh, Father in heaven, we desire that you would align our will with yours this morning, that we would use this church to advance your kingdom. By grace, would you fill us afresh with the Holy Spirit to illuminate the passage that we might be renewed in our thinking? Would you also, Lord, inflame our hearts in gratitude for the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, our Lord? And Lord, would you move our will in obedience to the praise of your glory and your grace? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as you are able, would you stand for the reading of God's inspired, infallible word from Acts chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 32 and go through chapter 5, verse 11. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. This is the word of God. You may be seated. As you might recall from earlier in our study of, of uh, Acts, we, uh, we talked about some distinguishing marks of the church. And so this morning, uh, these are some continuing marks of the early church. Um, in Acts chapter 2, we saw that they were marked by steadfast devotion. And we, uh, we 
saw that they continued steadfastly or that they were devoted, reads Acts chapter 2, 42, depending upon you know what your translation says. But the Greek word for devotion or this idea of continued steadfastness is proskateria. And this, this word is defined as to attend all of the exercises, faculties, and human energy constantly, diligently, instantly, assiduously toward one thing. This one thing that they were about and united in uh, had many facets to it. They were constant, they were diligent, they were instant, exercising all their faculties and human energy toward the apostles' doctrine, that is the word of God concerning his Christ. They were in community with one another, selfishly sharing, observing, and celebrating the Lord's Supper in dependent prayer together. Last week we saw that when the disciples, uh, when the apostles Peter and John reported that they were released from custody, they were commanded to speak no further nor to teach concerning Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. The church was marked by a united prayer for boldness that they would not remain silent. Today in our text, we're going to observe some further marks of the early church. We will see that the early church was marked by their fulfillment of the great commandment. We will see that the early church was marked by a united message. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, ascended to heaven, thus God declaring him Lord and Savior. We will further observe that the early church was uh, marked by an all-in commitment. And finally, we will see that the early church took sin seriously and wasted no time in eradicating it from amongst them all of which was empowered by the gift of Jesus Christ to the church, the Holy Spirit. So let's look uh, closely at Acts 44, uh, uh, 32 through 35. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There's not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought them uh, the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each, any as had need. When we think about this, we want to think, I want us to think uh, biblically, uh, think about the Bible as a whole. And, and one of the, the recurring themes through the Bible as a whole is that the people of God have been commanded to love to love God and to love those who are created in the image of God. And with extra measure, uh, the church is to love the covenant people of God. And this love for the people of God is a display of the love of God toward them. And of course, it is a reflection of their love to him when we love one another. In the law, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, it was codified that love for members of the shared covenant was to mark the people of God. Love was to mark them, and they even put it in the law. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In the second giving of the law, Moses expanded upon the love of neighbor, saying that the love for one another is a mark consistent with the love for Yahweh. Since, of course, God loved his people, 
That which marked the people of the covenant was summarized in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the legalists tested Jesus with this question, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus taught that the sum of the whole law and the prophets concerning the covenant people of God was that they were to be marked by a love of Yahweh and a love for his people. Jesus' response, he says to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the other is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Luke records in his gospel account that the question presented to him uh, was, what marks the people uh, to whom Yahweh will grant eternal life? So Luke question, uh, presents this in a different sort of question. What marks the people who have been given eternal life? In Luke 10, 25 through 28, it says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, and you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Jesus, before he was delivered over to his humiliation and death for sinners, left the disciples with a distinguishing mark of the people of the new covenant. Those who were purchased in his blood. In John 13, uh, 34 and 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you're also to love one another. By this people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. I think it's interesting that the Bible commands us to love. Like it's not a suggestion. It is a command of God. Love one another. How do you know that you have inherited eternal life? You love one another. How will the world know that you are indeed disciples of Jesus Christ? You love one another, right? Well, here in our text, in Acts chapter 4, we see the practical working out of the great commandment was actually a mark of the early church. You see, with one heart and with one soul, compelled by their love for God, their commitment to the testimony of Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, and their constant, diligent, instant exercise using all their faculties, all their human energy, they were prepared to sacrifice material blessings. That love for neighbor would mark their lives. They were ready and willing. They held up the right. They held their own rights to personal property, personal wealth. And they held on to that, right? It was given to them. You have the right to, to personal wealth and to personal property and to hang on to it. But when an occasion came for them to serve, they let go voluntarily in love their right to hold on to personal property. In love, they said, 
The occasion has come. My love for my brothers and my sisters outranked my right for personal property. The community of God's people uh, flourishing had become the priority of the early church. Their, their idea in each individual was, I want the church of God to flourish. I want the people of God to flourish. Notice with me that verse 33 says that grace was upon them all. The testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ brings great grace to the hearers who receive the gospel and those who respond in repentance and faith. You see, they are changed by it. This is what this really means, that this that great grace was upon them all. That they were sacrificial in material uh, goods, that they put the need of the community far above their own rights for personal property is an indication that God's grace was upon them. It was a supernatural work of God in them. It was grace uh, worked out of them as they loved one another. They were changed by it. They were transformed to new commitments, to new priorities, and to new affections. This morning we talked in our Sunday school class about conversion. And one of the things that he did not mention in there in great deal detail to me that not to my satisfaction is that, that sometimes when we think about being converted uh, in Christ, we, we often think this way or some non-believers do and some Christians that I have run across also still kind of think this way. I need to be a better me, right? I need to be a little bit better as a husband. I need to be a better uh, father, mother, whatever it is. I need to be a little bit better. Well, that's not what we need. We need to be new. We need to be transformed to be changed. Not just better, new, different, right? And so these who it says that great grace was upon them, the great grace of God had changed them, had made them new, had, had transformed them, and they had new commitments and new priorities and new affections. The testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ also brings about great opposition, doesn't it? In those who hear and receive, it brings change. It brings about a change in the one who receives and believes those whom God has called and those whom God has changed by grace. They receive it and believe it and are changed by it. And at the same time, when that testimony goes out, there are those who are hardened in opposition to it. It brings great opposition. We've seen this in the previous section, as in the previous section when they proclaim Jesus Christ risen from the dead. We see lots of opposition, don't we? We, we saw uh, the, the temple leaders opposed. We saw society opposed. We saw everyone, those people opposed. But we saw also at the same time, 5,000 people had been added to the church, right? So people are changed and transformed by the gospel, but also brings about great opposition. But see, the preaching of Christ commands a response. It commands a decision either way. It's, it's going to cause a decision. The, the proclamation of the gospel is going to either be for it or be against it. 
In Acts 5, 30-33, it says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witness to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Listen to their response. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And remember the opposition that Stephen faced in Acts chapter 7. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out and of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. See, the covenant people of God are marked by grace by the grace of God and believing the testimony of the risen Christ from the dead. And this is practically worked out in this text in that they were of one heart and of one soul. They are all in for the love of God and for the love of each other. They have been changed by grace. They have received the message of Christ. At this time, we should notice that the apostles bore the burden of both preaching the gospel and of dis distributing the care of the material needs to the community. When we look at verses 30, 34 and 35, there was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses sold them, and they brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed each as any had need. The proceeds of their gener generous love were then laid at the apostles' feet. And soon we'll see when we get to chapter 6 that this, this generosity and this love that they had for one another uh, became a, a burden to the apostles. So they would then delegate this portion to others so that they could be free to be uh, about the ministry of the word and prayer. Now, let's as we move forward to verses 36 and 37, we're going to see a great example in following that, we're going to see the poor. How is, by great example, is the great commandment worked out? And here's the example of Barnabas. Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So the community was marked by being all in. In their commitment to Christ and in their commitment to the gospel, the New Covenant community were committed to see their neighbor flourish. The community did not want to see their neighbor burdened by material needs such that they became discouraged in their commitment to the gospel. See, if they were in, in great need, they would be discouraged in their commitment to the gospel. So they said, you know, if they have a material need that I can fit, I will fit that so that they would be encouraged to continue in the gospel. Material gifts were meant to be spurring one another on to love, to spur one another on to, to uh, steadfast continuance in the gospel. As if to say, hey, brother, continue in the Lord. He is going to take care of you through, through the love of the community. 
And Barnabas, so named by the apostles, is given here to us as a great example of working out of the great commandment. He was born Joseph, a Levite. And in the strictness of Judaism, a Levite would have no right to personal property. In later years, though, this law was relaxed some. And nevertheless, he, he is a man born of Cyprus. And he retained property rights. And when a need arose in the community, Barnabas was all in. To be an encouragement to those in need, he voluntary, voluntarily, in love for God's people, encouraged them to press on by selling a field and rendering all the proceeds that belonged to him and laid it at the apostles' feet. He was all in. When I was in high school, uh, my baseball coach presented the gospel to me. And there was something about how he presented Jesus to me that convinced me of something. That if I was to surrender to the truth that he was delivering to me, no half-hearted or partial commitment would do. Perhaps it was the way he presented Christ's obedience unto death as God's all-in love uh, for me. But nevertheless, as he presented this truth to me, I rejected the invitation to come to Jesus. When I was 15 years old, I rejected it. Because there was something in me that said, I don't want to surrender everything. And I knew that that was the cost. And to me, the cost was way too high. To my thinking, even as an unbelieving 15-year-old, either you were all in or you were not in at all. I had set in my mind that I was either all in or I was not in at all. I couldn't do a half effort. I couldn't have a half-hearted measure or commitment. And so, rather than go half in or to fake it, I'm done with it. I reject it. I don't want it. I don't need it. I can't do it, and I don't want it. That was my attitude at the time. And now, in, in, my, in my sanctified 50-something-year-old mind, I'm not telling you how old I am, no, but in, in, my, in my old age now, and in my study of the scriptures, they consistently declare that truth to me. That what God commands of us is an all-in commitment. He wants all of us. You're either all in or you're not at all in. I've quoted C.S. Lewis many times uh, in this vein, and I think it's apropos here to do the same. In Mere Christianity, he writes, Give me all of you. I don't want so much of your time, so much of your talents and money, and so much of your work. I want you. All of you. I have not come to torment or to frustrate the natural man or woman, but to kill it. No half measures will do. I do not want to prune a branch here and a branch there. Rather, I want the whole tree. Hand it over to me, the whole outfit. All your desires, all your wants and wishes and dreams, turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me. I truly am convinced that that is the command of Scripture. When God calls us, He says, I want all of you. Right? I want the warts and all. I want everything. I want it all. I want you to give it all to me. Because he gave all of himself to us. Jesus gave all of himself. All of what was human in him, 
Jesus gave to God in obedience that he might give all of himself in his deity to us that we might flourish in relationship to God. Jesus went all in for the love of God and all in for the love of his covenant people. The mark of those for whom Christ died is an all-in love for God in complete surrender that we too might give all of ourselves in love for God's people. We just saw in Barnabas a great example of being all in. Now we're going to turn our attention from a great example to the great pretenders. These are the great pretenders. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias and Sapphira conspire together to represent themselves to the apostles and to the community. We are one of the all in. They represented themselves as being fully committed. They perhaps desire the benefit of the community, but are selfishly unwilling to pay the cost. They have pretended to be converted. They would like to be known as participants in the community uh, so long as they can determine just how far they're willing to go. As long as I remain in control, I'll be part of this community. But if God is in control of me, I don't want to be part of this community. I don't want to be that far in. I don't want to go that far. It's like some of us in church who think, I don't want to be known as a Jesus freak. Right? I'll, I'll, I'll preach the gospel as long as it's not, it's not, as long as nobody makes me uncomfortable with it. Because I wouldn't want anybody to label, label me, you know, oh, you're one of those Christians, you know, radical. Right? I don't want you to name one of those. Be named one of those. So I'll only go so far. It'll be Jesus and me. It'll be just Jesus and me. I'll keep this faith to myself. Right? I'll give you all of my heart as long as I can save a piece for me. I'll give you all of my soul as long as I can re retain the rights to a little bit of self-rule and self-control. All of my might I'll give as long as it doesn't exhaust me. I'll give you every effort that I have as long as I got enough sleep the night before. This is their attitude. I would ask us this morning to, to evaluate this in our own lives. Are you a pretender? Are you all in in your commitment to the worship of God? Except for, and I'm just giving you the most lame excuses I've ever heard, okay? So I, I, and, and I, and I don't know if anyone here owns these ones, but are you a pretender? Are you all in in your commitment to worship God except for the days when I need to go shopping? The fish are biting. Or I need to catch up on my sleep. Are you all in your commitment to presenting one another mature in Christ at His coming except when that person's personality rubs me the wrong way? Or when I don't share the same convictions as them on some minor issue. Or when they share a different political view than I do. They voted for a different candidate than me. I'm all in except for those occasions. Are you a pretender? 
Do you desire the benefits of community only if the price is right? Are you a pretender? I love the church family so long as I get to determine the level of sacrifice that it takes to remain in relationship with people. Called to, to love one another, but eh, I, I will. But there's a limit that I get to determine. How far will I go? Only as far as I want to. I'm all in, but don't ask me to contribute much. Are you a pretender who says, I'm all in? Don't ask me to contribute too much. I just don't have the time, energy, resources, or desire to do any more than I'm comfortable with. Are you a pretender? I'm all in, but let me determine the expectations. Well, another thing that we see in this passage that the early church is marked by. They're marked by their love for one another, their love for God. They're marked by taking the gravity of sin seriously. Let's look at uh, chapter five, verse three, uh, verses three through 10. But Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. You see, God takes sin seriously. Because God is long-suffering, merciful, gracious, and forgiving, the church can sometimes downplay the gravity of sin. Because of his nature of being long-suffering, patient, merciful, the church of God, his people, can sometimes downplay sin's gravity. Paul writes to this state of the church who had presumed upon the mercies of God in 1 Corinthians 5. I'm going to read just a whole chunk of it because it's, it's worthy to read the whole chunk. Five, uh, chapter 5, uh, 1 through 11. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant Ought you not to rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little, little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the uh, unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Paul tells the church at Corinth that quick and decisive action to remove sin in the covenant community is commanded. Let him who has done this be removed among you, he says. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Listen to what Ecclesiastes says about the seriousness of sin and the lack of immediate action. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 11 says this, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of a man is fully set to do evil. One of the marks of the early church was they understood the gravity of sin and the devastating effects it would have upon the community. Therefore, they were swift in recognizing it, immediate in removing sin, and firm in their denunciation of it. As we look at verses 3 and 4, again, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Peter called sin, sin. You had the right to keep all that was yours. You passed off your contribution as an all-in work of the Holy Spirit in your, height, in your heart, when indeed it was Satan who prompted you to deceive, and this is blasphemy. It's blasphemy to attribute to the Holy Spirit that which comes from the evil one. That's what he's really guilty of, right? We think, well, why is it such a big deal that he held back part of it and that he, he sort of presented represented it as something else because he's really representing that this gift that he was giving was a gift that was prompted in him by the Holy Spirit and he gave all and that he was one of those who were committed just like they were to give all and he attributed that to the Holy Spirit when indeed what had moved his heart was Satan right that is by definition blasphemy and as we see here in this passage, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was afforded no repentance. The indictment is from Peter is immediate. It's immediate. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. The sentence was immediate. To prevent the infection from spreading, Ananias' death was divine judgment. It was immediate. His burial was immediate. There was no time given to gather mourners. 
Did you know in that Jewish community that mourning a death was a big deal, right? And if you didn't have mourners of your own, you would go out and hire them, right? To, 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 to just show what a, what a life you had and what value you had. There was no funeral afforded this man. No time to go get mourners. His burial was immediate. This was a judgment from God. Young men from the community removed Ananias, took him out of the camp, presumably totally outside of the city, and they buried him. His family were given no provision to hold a memorial service. The sin was judged, dealt with, and removed. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was afforded no repentance. God judged him, killed him, they took him, they buried him. There was no mourning for this. See, the church did not like tolerate sin or wink at it, did they? They said sin must be removed, it must be dealt with sharply for the sake of love of God and the sake of love for my brothers. It is another way that the great commandment finds its fulfillment. Is that when we hate sin, Amongst us, we not that we hate our brothers and sisters, we just hate sin amongst us. And we need it, it needs to be removed because the infection it grows in men, as Ecclesiastes 8 told us, right? It continues to grow. It was afforded no repentance. Verse 7 After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes. For so much. See, we see here that the wife of Ananias was not told of her husband's death. It's been three hours. They've buried him. She didn't go to the memorial service. She wasn't invited. There was no mourning allowed for that kind of sin. She was invited to a funeral. But Peter did afford her something. He afforded, he afforded her an opportunity to repent. He afforded her an opportunity to repent. Here. Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, so much. Continuing the deception, right? She held on to that deception. And Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Because the sentence of sin, although often delayed, it is delayed because of the mercy of God, because the sentence is death for sin, in love the church today must make every effort to eradicate sin from among us. Doesn't mean that we're trying to be perfect, but we must work to eradicate sin in our midst. In the mercy of God, Jesus left the church with instruction for disciplining sin. He has given the confessing church the keys to the kingdom. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. To the church member who confesses Jesus as Lord and Christ, Jesus says, I give you the who and the what of the gospel. You are charged with exercising the keys to the kingdom. If one doesn't behave consistent with the gospel, if you loose them from the community, they are indeed loosed. If you receive them by con credible confession and by behavior consistent with that confession, they will be received in heaven. 
In chapter 18, Jesus gives the instruction for action that is concerning sin in the community. Here's the action in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Again, opportunity for repentance. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, listen to the long-suffering and patience of God that is supposed to be represented in and how we exercise the keys. Because if he does not listen to you and you alone, when you take him privately, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to you, another moment and an act for repentance. And if he doesn't repent, listen, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In our fallenness, we are going to sin against each other, aren't we? But we are not called to let it go unchecked. We are called to call it what it is. When we call it what it is, though, in love, what do we do? We offer the gospel once again. When we, when we go to a brother or a sister who has sinned against us, we offer the gospel once more. We, we ask questions like this. Hey, I love you and I, I am concerned and I, I, I understand your confession of faith and, and I believe that you are, you are in the Lord. But in this way, your behavior, your behavior is inconsistent with one who has been changed by the gospel. So I'm offering you right now, brother, a chance, sister, a chance to turn from yourself and turn to him again. Or even lovingly saying something like this, brother or sister, that's not how you learned Christ. If indeed you learned him, this is not his way. Just as a reminder of who they are in Christ, offering repentance. So, the command of Scripture, I think, is here. Take sin seriously. Offer repentance and faith in the gospel to those who have sinned against us. But remove the unrepentant from among you. This is the command of Scripture. Take it seriously. The early church was marked by an understanding of the gravity of sin. Verse 11 of chapter 5. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. See, the whole church benefits when the keys to the kingdom of God are exercised properly. When the church distinguishes between the all in and the not in at all, great grace of God is upon her. When the church is marked by the great commandment to love God and to love her neighbor, the reality of the resurrected Jesus Christ becomes our faithful testimony to the world, doesn't it? When the church takes sin seriously, love for God and love for community is expressed. And it's expressed in reverent awe for the glory and the praise of God. See, when these church members, these covenant members, these new believers, this this is the first time that they are called the ecclesia. 
in the scripture, the church. This is the first time they're called the church. And great fear came upon the whole ecclesia, the church. Great fear came upon the whole church, upon all who heard these things. It was great benefit to them that this sin was eradicated, that a separation was, was, was defined between the all in and the not at all in. Because what happens then when we are uh, acting and living as God has called us to by faith and when the grace of God is upon us, then reverent fear and awe for the glory of God and his praise is our response. And that's, this is a response of the church here. Well, let us uh, pray and then pause for silent reflection. Father in heaven, I do ask for your grace to be upon us as a church. Ask, Lord, that we would be united in our testimony that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and that he is the Lord and master. I pray, Lord, that we would be marked by a love for you and a love for one another. I pray that in that love for one another, it wouldn't be sloppy, as they say, sloppy agape, but it would be a love for one another that takes sin seriously. That we want our brothers and sisters to be presented mature in Christ when you come. That, Lord, in love we would be honest about sin that we would remove those who are a cancer to the body. Give us wisdom and grace as we one another each other, as we tolerate the things that rub us the wrong way. Lord, we just ask for your grace and your mercy upon us. Help us, Lord, to be marked by the things that you have called us to be marked by. In Jesus' name, amen.